Hello, good morning, everyone. My name is Azad Ali. Uh, today's uh, uh, podcast, Exclusionary Urbanism, is brought to you by Jindal School of Art and Architecture, Upi Jindal Global University, Sonipat, Haryana, India. We have a guest today uh, from the academy, from the industry, and two senior students of uh, Jindal School of Art and Architecture, Upi Jindal University. I request Avishi to take the discussion forward and introduce the panel members. Dr. Dinesh Mohan is honorary professor at the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, since 2017. He was distinguished professor at Chignagi University, Gautam Buddha Nagar, from 2016 to 2018. From 2010 to 2015, he was Emeritus Volvo Chair Professor for Transportation Planning and Safety at IIT Delhi. Prior to 2010, he was a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at IIT Delhi. In his illustrious scholarly career with the IIT Delhi, spanning over four decades, he has shouldered many responsibilities, including being head of the Center of Biomedical Engineering from 1991 to 1996, coordinator of the Transportation Research and Injury Prevention Program from 1998 to 2010, and Henry Ford Chair for Traffic Safety Biomechanics from 1996 to 2005. He started his research career at the Insurance Institute of High Safety USA before moving to IIT Delhi in 1979. His past research includes vibration of anisotropic plates, mechanical properties of human aortic tissue, head, chest, and premier injury tolerance, injuries in human freefall, effectiveness of helmets, and the first evaluation of airbags in world-class crashes. He continues to work in epidemiology of road traffic crashes and injuries in rural India, pedestrians, bicycles, and motorcycle crash modeling, and aid for disabled. His current interests include sustainable transport policy, people's right to access, and safety as a fundamental human right. Professor Mohan is the director of the Independent Council for Road Safety International and has been a member of the WHO advisory panel on road safety. A consultant on safety related matters to governments in India, Nepal, Indonesia, Thailand, Bangladesh, Iraq and Libya and to automotive industries including Telco, Ashok Leyland, Volvo Trucks, HL Motors Limited, Escorts Limited, Maruti Uthyog Limited, Siam, Bajaj Auto Limited, and also to international organizations like World Bank and WHO. Professor Mohan holds a B.Tech in Mechanical Engineering from the Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay, a Master's in Aerospace Engineering from the University of Delaware, and a PhD in Biomechanics from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He started his research career at the Insurance Institute of High Safety, USA, uh, before moving to IIT Delhi in 1979. We are privileged to have Professor Mohan with us today. We want to learn from him everything from post-colonial urban design to how urban layouts in India often undermine equity and justice in our cities. Our professor at Jindal School of Art and Architecture, Girish Agarwal, who also works on these areas, will discuss some of these critical issues with him over the next hour. Over to Professor Agarwal. Thank you. Thank you, Dravian. 
Sir Rishi, uh, Dinesh, it is a great pleasure to have you as a guest this morning. Uh, unfortunately, Professor Ghosh was unable to join us. He's having connectivity issues on his laptop. So I'll get the ball rolling. Um, I'm going to do this in a question-answer format in the sense that I'll ask you a broadish question and you take it from that point on. So first off, I have often heard you talk about how there's a certain common pattern in cities in India, particularly the cities which at some point served as centers of uh, British power. So uh, can you give us a quick exposition on that? Uh, thank you, Girish, and thank you all from uh, Jindal University. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So actually our cities have seen a very dramatic shift since formal British colonial power took place in the 1850s. Uh, the, as it is, we have a history of uh, past intolerance. And so all our habitations from villages to cities separated people by caste, especially the lower castes. For example, even today, a large proportion of Dalits live outside the main village. So this separation of people by caste was an old habit. This got exacerbated when the British started ruling India and they had to establish uh, their own administrative capital. And New Delhi is the best example. So that the British city was established uh, separate from the old city. And this is true for all cities, old cities in India. So all district capitals, just like New Delhi, were established right next to the old city. And all the British lived in the new city. So did their government servants. And so did everyone else who the British allowed, which included rich merchants and uh, Rajas, Talukdars, who they allowed. So all the Rajas and Talukdars settled in the new city. And so did the rich merchants, except the merchants who still dealt with uh, uh, large amounts of trade, especially to do with basic commodities, they stayed in the old city until independence. And so the old city in India uh, became neglected over the last hundred years. And it is, this is true of many cities in the world wherever racism and uh, uh, dominated. So you have that in uh, apartheid countries in Africa, you have that in few other places, even in the US, the blacks lived separately from the whites. So we had the same system after the British uh, started living here and established their capital. So you'll notice in every district, we have something called the cantonment and civil lines. And another thing happened that the army was positioned inside the city, which is not true in European cities or white American cities. So we have the cantonment right next to or inside the new city, which occupies a lot of land. And no one is allowed to do anything there except the army or the armed forces. So we have very segregated cities. And after independence, 
because the new upcoming generation of people, whether they were businessmen or industrialists, very often they could not find land or homes to build in the new British city. The, the British city was almost like an apartheid city, not allowing Indians to do what they felt like in this new city. And when, after independence, our city started growing, third cities came up which surround the old city and the cantonment and the civil lines. And these started growing. And uh, the first town planning was done in Delhi with the help of Americans. And so we had a huge American influence in, uh, in, in, in how our cities were planned. And a lot of other cities for their new plans copied the Delhi master plan. So that's our basic history, which has sort of divided people by caste and by religion. And the division by religion has become more acute in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And the old city has continued to deteriorate. So we have a serious problem in which cities, which parts of the city are considered nice to live in. For example, these days, young, well-off people prefer to live in the old city in Europe because that's where the restaurants are, the, the cafes are, the movies, the theater, and the offices. All government, a lot of government offices in old city, in European cities, and in many old American cities, are in the old city. There are no government offices, for example, in any old city in India. And there are in the nice part of other cities where poor people are not allowed to live. So I've given you a sort of a negative picture of Indian cities, but I must say that um, there's silver lining. That is because we are not very efficient and we have what many people call corruption. Because of corruption, because of not following laws and because of illegal occupation of land, our cities have become better because they have allowed some mixing. Uh, there was, after independence, since most of the employment was in the government, government, government made residential colonies, including in our institutions. And what's interesting is that they had the people from the topmost level to the bottommost level, as long as they were formally employed by the government, living in the same area. They didn't live in the same block. But as we see in many colonies, you have A, a type, B type, C type, D type, E type housing. And so the E type housing is not too far from the A type housing. And so that's sort of mixed people, but that mixing was limited up to formally employed people, which is only 10% of India's economy. The 90% of uh, informal workers never became a part of this mix, if they did, but they have by occupying in land illegally, illegally and trying to live close to their, to their work. Uh, another thing helped, which are frequent elections. So every now and then, before the elections, the politicians promised people who occupied land in our cities that they will make it illegal. But all this is so uncertain. It happens, but it's uncertain. So the lives of poor people are always under tension. They never know when they're gonna be moved. And because they never know when they're gonna be moved, they don't invest enough. 
where they live. They just invest enough to live. But poor people need to invest slowly to improve their homes over a long period of time. And that's how you get better housing because people who live in those homes which they own legally or illegally, they, if they think they're going to live there forever, they'll make them nicer and nicer. But if they think that they're not going to live there, then the common interest in keeping it nice, whether it's the street outside or your own home reduces. So I would say that's a broad understanding I have of the Indian city. Okay, thanks Dinesh. That's really interesting. Shifting gears just a little bit, that in terms of access, right, broadly defined, do you think access in a city should be built in, that it should be structurally entrenched when we design the urban spaces so that the city and its structure and access effectively uphold human rights? And where have we faltered in developing post-colonial urban spaces? Some of that you've spoken to, but more specifically, because we have, just after post-independence, we've done close to 50 so-called fully planned design cities, and we continue to do that. We keep talking about greenfield development. So where have we faltered in developing these post-colonial urban spaces? And broadly within the context of that, what could be design manifestations of what is called subaltern urbanism? So Girish, uh, you must please, all of you have to remember, I, I'm not an economist. I'm not an architect. I'm not an urban planner. I've not been trained on the, in these issues. Yeah. So my understanding is from my life experience and just living and working and, and, and just looking around. My understanding is that you cannot plan an inclusive city easily. It's not possible because the people who plan are the richest and the most important people in society. How can they plan? Mm -hmm. So all they can do is that we are going to be somewhat uh, humble and we are going to plan for ourselves somewhat to make give ourselves a good life. At the same time, say we don't know enough, but we can't be too ugly and we can't be too crude and we can't be too selfish, hopefully. And say we're going to leave spaces open. And so spaces should be left for poor people to occupy. And I don't know how this can be done so easily in a society like ours, where money matters most. And so only way it can be done is to have spaces which are government owned, which poor people occupy. And they, they should be left around in the city like chicken pox. So they're all over the place. And so there should be govern, government land around which people occupy. And there should be some minimal regulations to ensure that their streets are somewhat okay, wide, and they should be given uh, access to water and electricity and some uh, municipal services so that they can be kept clean. And that's a state responsibility. Uh, and let them develop them the way they, they, they can. Because once you give these things to planners and architects, you get these ideas of multi-storied housing for the poor. And multi-storied housing for the poor just has not worked anywhere in the world, no matter what you do. 
and I'll just give a brief, my understanding of that, that any system works where the manager of that system is not, is less important than the most important person in his constituency. But if the manager of the system, that includes universities. If the manager of the system is much, or schools, if the manager of the system is much more important than all the parents and the students, then the parents and the students uh, have no choice. They have to do what the manager does and the manager doesn't listen to them. So if you notice your fancy apartment buildings, 40 stories high in Manhattan, work very well in Park Street because the manager of the buildings is poorer than everyone else who lives in that building and he has to listen to them and, and do what they need. Whereas multi-storied buildings in Harlem don't work that well because the only fellow who has a regular job in the building is the manager. And all the tenants don't have a regular income. So why should he listen to them? He can sell off the bulbs, he can sell off the wires, he can do it, and, and there's not that much. So the building deteriorates. And so I think for poor people, the management of the building, the building of the building, the repairs of the building or the house should be left to themselves and their community and not to uh, paid professionals from who are outside the system. So I think poor people have to live in very low rise uh, occupations and rich people should live in high rise occupation, uh, buildings. So everyone in Lutyens, Delhi should live in a six floor building. And I don't care if each building, each, each flat is, say, 500 meters, square meters, or 600 square meters, with three garages each. But they should be living on seven floors because they'll be maintained very well. They'll have a swimming pool. They might even have a tennis court and everything. Uh, whereas poor people should live in low-rise, one or two stories, jam-packed together. And if you look at it, and it should be decided by density. So if you have seven floors, uh, or 10 floors in a building, and poor people have only one or two floors, that, mean, that means the same number of families can live in 10 times less block area than rich people. Sorry, 10 times the number of families can live in the same area. Uh, so, so, it is, it is, so what's important is that we plan by density and not by, by, by what's it called, your, the number of floors. And I think, so I'm not sure on how we can really plan cities which are inclusive, except by default. So maybe I could not say plan cities, but I mean, that segues well into what I was thinking of asking you next, that the location of Bastis, I mean, what most people call slums in Delhi, yeah. is very closely tied to where the Basti residents work and what access to transportation do they have? Right? Almost all middle-class, I would say not almost all middle-class households in Delhi are deeply dependent on the residents of these bastis for everything from household help to basic services like electricity, plumbing, guarding their houses. So, but the general thing is that they don't want the bastis to be visible. Right? They're hidden. If you look at most bastis, 
unless you know there's a basti, it's not very really obvious. They'll be around a corner, around a high wall, and suddenly there's this large cluster of houses. And they don't want that to be visible. So part of this, what I'm trying to say is that the location of the bastis is very dependent on where residents work because of the way a transportation system works, because of what they paid, because of access to jobs. Yet the residents who use the labor of the Bhakti residents don't want them to be visible in a sense. Right? A lot of this has been brought into stark relief during this ongoing crisis caused by the government's ham-handed response to the novel coronavirus. Right? And I know you worked as part of your central foundation work a lot of these issues over the year. So we would love to hear your thoughts on this. Actually, you see, all of, all of these depend on your socio-dominant economic, social, and political ideology. Uh, ever since, for the last 30, 40 years, uh, we have been dominated by the Western, Western European American ideology, post Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Uh, we must remember that uh, those societies, especially Western European societies, adopted a new liberal economy after having gone through almost uh, half a century of establishing social welfare states. And so those societies already had free education for 90% of the people. Most of those societies have had already established free medical care for everyone. Most of the societies, especially in Europe, had completely free university education for everyone, however imperfect. But the fact is that over a century of ideological compulsions of labor union agitation, of people understanding what is good for society and academ academics. For example, today in my institution or your or Jindal University, how many students and faculty members think that the socialist society is good? My suspicion would be less than 5%. So once people think that socialism is bad, who are all students and faculty members of universities, how do you expect them to do something that we are talking about? So these things are not technical issues. These are political issues. And I must say that the crisis uh, that we are seeing today has nothing to do with the city structure. I think that's to do with not with 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 no safety nets for workers, uh, having all work at, uh, 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 informal, no permanent jobs. You must remember that India has the smallest public sector job in the world. Hardly 3% of people are employed in the public sector in India. And the most capitalist society of the world called the United States of America has 17% of people employed in the public sector. So unless you have a very, very, very large number of people employed in the public sector, you can't have fair play in a society. It's not possible. Unless, when I say public sector, I don't mean Air India. I don't mean Ashoka Hotel. I don't mean... Public sector, I mean municipalities, schools, universities, et cetera, et cetera. So once you do that, then the 
system, the poor people have power of, 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 because they have job. For example, in the US, people are getting, they didn't move because they're getting unemployment benefits. They know the government, though they're unemployed, they're being paid and much more so in Europe. Whereas 90% of India's population will not get paid if they get employed. So uh, I, I think city structures develop. Their cities are, are living in organic um, uh, uh, systems. And uh, I, I think it has to do with once people have a stake where they are, then they will do different things. But we have realized over the last two months that a large proportion of the people living in our cities have no stake in the city. If they had a stake in the city, if they owned their little hut, if they owned their little plot, if they owned their little jogi, and they knew they were not going to get moved ever, they wouldn't have left. Okay, so uh, it's also our insensitivity. That is, let me ask you a difficult question. That is, uh, we keep saying that these people are important because they have built our cities, because they work for us, they keep our houses clean. One, it's a very uh, complicated issue called strong inference, but let me put it very crudely. In science, to understand what, whether what your, whether your argument is correct or not, you have to reverse it. So sup suppose we say that all the labor which is running back to the villages, suppose they were in the city and not doing anything for us. Suppose some of them were drunkards, some of them were artists, some of them were singers, some of them having a good time. Then would we say that they, they don't deserve, that they, because they're not cleaning our homes and not running our industry, they don't deserve anything? So if, if you can say that, if you, if you can't say that, then the argument that they work for us is a wrong argument. They deserve to be treated well because they're human beings. I don't like the idea we say that they built our cities. So we control them. They built our cities, they're under us. If we don't like them, we can throw them out. So I, you know, I'm not answering no, your I mean, question. I, I completely agree. My question was more, in a sense, designed to be polite that from my perspective, we should look at it the other way around that who actually occupies the city, right? Not, not necessarily looking at the control on the city. So, I mean, that's what I was thinking we talk about next, the community spaces in the cities, right? There's this huge issue of, I mean, I saw that it wasn't there so much growing up in Delhi in the 70s, it's become much more stark recently that say neighborhood parks, like Delhi in all the middle-class colonies, every three, 400 houses, there's a little park. And there's been this ongoing conflict for the last 10 odd years as building activity increased. A lot of labor with no place to go would occupy the parks during the day. And the residents would deeply resent that saying, these are our parks. What are these people doing here? And they're still ongoing. Like, to my take, half the parks in Delhi have been closed not because of any fear of catching the virus from the open air, but just so those spaces could be excluded from pollution by 
all the underclass. That, that was what I was going to ask you that the way we have our community spaces, right? whether designed right. or whether they organically develop, how do these affect the inclusivity of the urban spaces? Right? We have things like Delhi Heart, which instituted a ticket at that time, is designed to keep a certain economic level out. Right? That's supposed to be a public space. But if you institute a ticket of 20 rupees, that cuts off a large number of people who cannot spare 20 rupees to go hang around there. And how have so these are certain kinds of fault lines, and how have these fault lines been exposed even more in these COVID-19 times? And this is sort of a longish thing. And where do you think a course correction can start? Can it even start? Can it be something that is planned? I mean, what would it take in terms of societal mind change from the people who control power? Uh, I think it, it, it has a partly to do. Can you hear me? I, I'm yes. not getting a feedback. OK. So it has partly to do with our concept of democracy. Because we have RWAs, which is a democratic concept. That's, that that neighborhoods should decide for themselves uh, uh, what's going on and decide for themselves how the neighborhood is used. So uh, all RWAs decide that people from outside their neighborhood can't come into the park. Now, if that is true, then and, and, and it has an associated problem which we discussed when the issues of RWS came up 20, more than 20 years ago, that resident welfare association can only be formed by legal neighborhoods. And so most of the poor people who live in illegal neighborhoods can't have an RWA, legal RWA. And so this part of democracy pushes out people from parks. So the only way out in the time being is uh, because you can't now go back and say that you can't rule yourself. So the only way out is to have more public spaces which are open and not a part of the RWAs closer to poorer people's homes. That's my inefficient uh, solution. But a more important issue is road space. I think the most important public space in all cities of the world is the road. And even here, if you go out in the morning, it, it is, you don't see these sites in many cities of the world. There are people brushing their teeth on the road, there are people bathing on the road, there are people in the poorer local, localities, there are people taking a walk in their dressing gowns and their pajamas and their dhotis. So the road is the most important public space in the city in India where you can't be kept out easily. And so I think the first thing would be if we broaden our uh, sidewalks up, up our pedestrian paths, make them double the size. And if we have more shops and entertainment and other things along, for example, uh, whether it's Greater Noida or whether it is uh, Noida or whether it's Dwarka, there are huge wide roads in, in those places, in the newly developed areas. But no shop, there's nothing on the road. And, and I think all, at least a third of that space should be used commercially by street vendors, by little shops, by little cafes, by chartwalas, uh, by 
small furniture shops. So there's a lot of activity in the road. And once there's a lot of activity in the road, then that public, the most important public space for social interaction will become the road. And the, 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 the RWA will not be able to control that. They may object to that change taking place, but that change has to be made that you have to have wide sidewalks, take, take away all the wasted space on our huge boulevards in our colonies and make a lot of uh, 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 business along those roads. And we, there's nothing new I'm saying because all the, the cities which people praise, like London or Tokyo or Paris or whatever, all have businesses along every main road. You have a lot to see. You have to sit down everywhere. You can, so, and it's very important to have uh, street vendors because they bring safety to the, to the neighborhood. They are police informers quite organically. So there's no crime where there are a lot of street vendors and they give you cheap food and cheap other things which ordinary people can enjoy. And it also causes mixing. And the last issue is women. I think uh, uh, you have to have a lot of the women have to say we don't we are only allowed to go on the road for some purpose, which is very unfair because all men can go on the road for no reason. They can hang around the road, they hang around, hang around panwalas, palwalas, or whatever, chat, exchange gossip. So I think we have to understand that loitering is an important part of socialization and public spaces because public spaces should not be used only for very purposeful activity like the rich do they go for their exercise to keep their tummy in they don't get there to just hang around i don't see any rich people going out of their homes to hang around but going out of public spaces for hanging around not for purposeful activity so children should be allowed to hang around so I think we should start with freeing up roads by putting more businesses on roads and making more and more parks closer to poorer people which are not under the control of our leaders. And let's see what happens. And uh, at some point, if there's a change in ideologies and understandings, especially of the young people who are young today, uh, as they become policymakers, that that's the way to run a city and that's what a nice city is, that's how policies will change. I, I think that that's my understanding because is I don't. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying, is your camera off because we can't see you? I didn't switch it off, but let me see if I can. Ah. Ah, now you're back on. Okay. It, it, it went so, up, went uh, up on its own. <laughs> yeah, all these uh, broadcast software. I had never understood. So part of what you were saying, I mean, sort of mostly inspired by you. The first thing I tell my students whenever I talk about roads is that roads are not meant for cars. Roads are meant as community spaces, more so in India and even elsewhere. I mean, if you look at the early 20th century and even late 19th century to a certain extent debates in US and in Europe on the introduction of the motor car. There's strong resistance to the motor car and 
there's one of my favorite paragraphs. I don't have it handy right now, which talks about that roads were meant for people to walk on. What are all these motorized buggies doing? And we seem to have flipped that completely and designed our roads and look at our roads as an avenue for motor vehicles to go from one point to another and people are treated as a nuisance. So, and the consequence of that, I mean, you know, in Delhi alone, over 700 people a year, pedestrians a year, I mean, die in uh, motor vehicle accidents, right? And these are all people walking along on the streets, going about their business. So, and throughout India, pedestrians are one of the largest segment of the people, of the 150,000 people that we kill on our roads every year. So yeah. what, I mean, part of that we already discussed, but what is it about our road designers, our road methodology, how we look at transportation network, that what you were saying about sidewalks, footpaths, which have become virtually non-existent in Indian cities, what is it in our design mentality, how our engineers are trained, how our urban designers are trained, how our architects are trained, that they do not see the pedestrian? I mean, the pedestrian and the bicyclist are the two largest mode of transportation for Indians in urban spaces, even non-urban spaces. Right? So what do you think has gone wrong in how are design, build, design and building professionals are trained? I think uh, professionals will always be trained badly. It's not, I don't, in historically, I've never seen professionals being trained properly. It's always bad training because especially in unequal societies, the rich are taught by the rich or, 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 are, the, or are the ones who want to be rich by becoming faculty members. So, and, and so, uh, we do we can't expect change uh, because of technical training. What happens mm -hmm. is that in spite of what I'm saying, in every society there are dissidents uh, in universities, in politics, and so on. And these dissidents come up with new theories and new ideas as intellectuals, as uh, teachers, as uh, some of the best teachers in India who are respected by my contemporaries uh, as teachers from their colleges, some of them did not publish much at all. They're, but they were heroes because they were the dissidents in their college and they taught amazing stuff because they read stuff around the world and brought new ideas to their students. But they were somewhat outcasts in the broader academic community, but they inspired students. And those students who got inspired led movements, whether NGOs or political movements, and things change. So, of course, I'm, I've been a teacher all my life and a researcher, so I'm not saying we should not exist. But uh, uh, to think that we are the only ones who can train people properly is probably not correct because you need any university should have all kinds of people of all ideologies and so on. Uh, it depends on how the administration of the university and the government sees educational institutions. When administrations and governments 
see education institutes, institutions as problem places, then you have a serious problem. Because those who teach new things become a, a greater, become a smaller group. And those students who listen to these people also become a smaller group with less power. And so uh, let me give you an example. The most radical uh, thinker of the 60s was Jane Jacobs in the US, talking about eyes on the street and what the street should be. That was 60 years ago. Has the American city changed because of Jane Jacobs? A little bit, not too much. And more so lately through gentrification. So I think that some, if there are people, students, architects, town planners, as they get into positions of authority, if they start saying only one thing, then let's, let's have more business on street. After all, everyone is very proud of uh, uh, cafes on Paris streets and, and tables and chairs on the sidewalks having cheese and wine. But the same people don't like Golgappas and chat on our streets. So there's a deep inferiority complex in the Hindu bloody brain. And so cheese and wine is okay on the street, but Golgappa is not because poor people eat Golgappas. So the whole issue is that once you give space, if space is available and the streets are wider, uh, uh, they'll be occupied with business unless we have a dictatorship. They'll, 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 they'll do what they have to, to let the police and municipal authority let them sit there. Secondly, cars. We've been talking of cars as a bad thing now for 60 years, or what, or at least 40 years very seriously. But cars are increasing. Only thing which has changed in European cities is there are walking zones. And they're fashionable. You don't have walking markets in a poor part of the city in, in, in Vienna. So I, I think it has to do with, I, I don't understand it enough, but I think societies go through stages. For example, if someone, a faculty member in your university, whose family, extended family, has not owned a car ever, and your faculty member is earning now whatever they do. But whatever they do allows them to buy a car as soon as they join. So uh, who am I to tell that faculty member uh, that you should not have a car when two or three generations of my family have owned cars? So this idea that cars are bad is not, uh, is not reflected by any of us. No, none of us have given up our car. And because we need it also. So I think that will take time, Girish. I think, I think the society has to become more middle class and the middle class saying we want nicer cities at some point and then putting pressure that we want our streets to be nice because the people who need the city, number one, that is the poor, poorer people, one, they don't have a voice on the, this issue. Their main uh, uh, problem in life is not a safe walk. 
my main problem in life is a permanent home, enough money to educate their children in food, and to keep their job. So what we are talking of are concerns. Where, when, as you mentioned, Hazard Center, Dunu, Dunu, Dunu Roy, who runs the Hazard Center, many years did, did a survey of low-income uh, bastis in Delhi and asked them, what is your most dangerous part in your possible most dangerous part of your profession? And we were, because we wanted to collect data on hazards at workplaces. And we were amazed that a very large proportion mentioned the journey to work as being the most hazardous. Okay, so they are aware of it, that as cyclists and pedestrians, it's a hazardous uh, journey. But in their scheme of things, it's not their first demand. Okay. And, and they don't know how to make that demand. And many of them think this is a normal thing that cars should have their place, otherwise where the cars will go. They have not seen or been exposed to narrow roads with wide footpaths as examples anywhere. They don't see, so they don't see that as a functioning reality. And in spite of all this talk, none of our new cities, none, except there are very few uh, examples, but they are very, very rich areas. For example, Hiranandani Estate in Mumbai, near Pawai, or the airport city where the hotels are. They, they, amazingly, in those places, the roads are designed quite well, where there are no pedestrians. Of course, in Hiranandani Estate, there are pedestrians, but if you see the roads designed, all of you should go to, to the, uh, the, the airport city where all the hotels are. The roads are designed very well with wide sidewalks, with roundabouts, with speed breakers, but there are no pedestrians. So the best concepts have been used by the architect to design a nice place, but they're in the wrong place. And so, but it should be used. As an example, it can be done. And so I think it's a, it, it's a very political issue because once, once there's a political, uh, demand that this should be done, the same people who are making narrow sidewalks will tomorrow making broad sidewalks because all of us know how to please our bosses. So th there has to be a political demand and a political compunction for young architects and land planners start pleasing their bosses. How can a young person design the wrong thing and get rejected? She won't get her next promotion then. So. All of you have to start making noise because I think uh, change does not place, take place slowly. And initially when new ideas come, they're always by a minority because new idea can't be a majority. So if a new idea is a minority, it won't get implemented. So you, the young people have to make that a majority. Then more and more young people start saying this is the correct thing. So it takes usually a generation or more to change. That we are hoping to do it in half a generation. That's a goal at JSA. <laughs> so, um, no, no, I, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't teach those things because that's our job. But how effective it is, that, that people decide of all kinds. We have a couple of questions from the one related question from the audience is yes. how can we encourage 
loitering on the streets, especially for women and children, when safety is such a large concern? Actually, especially women, you know what is the most dangerous place for women? Their home. 90% or 80% of women in the world, including India, are bothered at home, not on the street. So hmm. the public space is the safest place for anyone. Uh, young boys don't get beaten by their father on the street, they get beaten at home. Wives don't get beaten by the husband on the street, they get beaten at home, and so on. So this excuse that it's not a safe place is a very upper class idea because that gives them an excuse not to mix with poorer people and not to take public transport and not to do anything in public and to destroy everything in the public space because they don't need it. So I mean, a road to the Indian roads, by the way, are about this are safer than American roads for people. There's more crime on American roads than Indian roads, say in Washington, except in the rich areas of Washington. Uh, if, if American roads were so safe, why is it that all American cars have automatic lock docking mechanisms when they start? If the road was so safe? So uh, 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 from all points of view, for rich people, especially, and middle class people especially, our, our cities and roads are very, very safe. And there are other poor countries where the roads are not safe. There's cities like Johannesburg or in South America, but our cities are very safe up to now. And that's largely because we still have hawkers and street vendors on the road. As long as you have businesses on the road, they'll be safe because businesses don't want crime. Uh, uh, on, in their neighborhood, otherwise they won't get customers. So they become yeah. informers to the police. Secondly, since you're speaking from an architecture school, all our road designs are wrong, including in the new areas, because there should be no setback of buildings. Like you see in Paris or London, the building ends on the sidewalk. There is no boundary wall. Because as long as you have a boundary wall, that there's no policing of the street. The shopkeeper can't see what's happening on the road. Once the front of the shop, which is glass, abuts the sidewalk, the potential criminal knows that he's being watched from inside the shop by customers and the owner. And what's very interesting is that more than about 25 years ago, in Los, the Los Angeles Police Department, made a special drive telling all the shopkeepers, shop owners to have clear glass fronts of their shops and not block them with things. Because then, and crime dropped automatically because then the criminals know that there's evidence from inside the shop on who's doing what outside. So design has a lot to do with, with making things safe. And I would urge that more Indian architects pay attention to what's called CPT, crime prevention through environmental design. Uh, crime, CPT, the associations flourish in Europe, a few in South America, but I have not seen a chapter in India.
So CPTED, the, 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 their principles have to do with how people from inside homes watch streets, how, for example, bus stops. They say bus stops should be opposite each other on two sides of the street, because then there's always someone present who's seeing what's happening. But in India, we create this even more pro greater problem that on a wide road, we put a medium with a fence, median with a fence. So if you're standing on one side of the wide road as a woman, and if I'm standing on the other side of the wide road, and I see you being bothered, there's nothing I can do. Because I can't cross the road, and at times I can't even see you because of the hedge in the middle of the road or the fence. So our design of wide roads and medians encourages crime. There should be no hedge in the middle of the road. There should be no fence in the middle of the road. And this also uh, reduces a, a, a police protection. Because if a police jeep is standing on this side of the road and you're being bothered if these on the other side of the road, the fellow has to drive his jeep for one kilometer and make a U-turn and come to you. So uh, your road design and street design has a lot to do with crime also. And because we are so lucky that because of illegality of street vendors and other things, our roads are still very safe, except in very rich colonies, because we don't allow street vendors. But we still allow Istriwadas and Panwadas. So there's still, the Panwala and Istriwala knows everything on the, in the area. So there have to be more of them, because that's free policing. So that's the idea of kiosks. And in some European cities, the, the, the special police force, which is supposed to look after VVIPs, they specially place food trucks and kiosks in rich areas as their watchdogs. So we have to learn all this as a part of design also. Another question. Yeah. So uh, this is slightly broader that one of our listeners is saying that it's always a learning opportunity to listen to Professor Mohan. And the question is that why aren't decision makers able to understand this? Because you and others have been talking about it for years. Yes. That urban spaces, I mean, this is, they haven't specified what they're referring to, but I assume you're talking of urban spaces and safety. Right. Do you expect any change in decision maker thinking based on looking at the lockdown and what they might have learned are they treating the lockdown as a learning experience i number one one should never ever use an outlying event to learn things because what happens during an outlier outlying event are very special characteristics and so one can use that for discussion, for pause, etc. But changes have to be made mm -hmm. on a broader understanding of society and happenings. Uh, it's not true that uh, no one listens. Uh, I think that things have been done in this country also, which have changed, but for, because of a large number of us in the country talking about it. After all, uh, everything is, affects everything in a sense that you have RTI laws, you have some human rights laws, which have, are not that effective, but RTI, 
So many things have changed in terms of laws. Our urban policies officially and trans urban transport policies officially say all the right things, actually. And the issue is in, in detail. And the detail gets lost because uh, uh, our upper caste professionals don't work with their hands. Uh, they sit in offices. Uh, they don't go around doing things because you're not supposed to work with your hands. For example, uh, because we think IT is very good, so the best students from our, uh, uh, from our colleges have gone to IT. So there's no manufacturing now. So IT has destroyed manufacturing because of our societal understanding of, of working with hands. But I'm much more uh, positive that things happen and we should learn from organic developments in our cities. And so the way hawkers occupy spaces, that tells you where business is, where should you have more activity, how to design spaces. For example, they sit between trees. So you say if you have a, say, three meter or four meter sidewalk with trees at the edge, then the space between trees is a dead space. That's where you can have businesses. You can have parking for cycles and so on and so forth. So if you look at our naturally occurring, naturally developing organic spaces in our cities, which have happened legally or illegally, we can learn from those designs. And uh, I think people listen. It happens slowly. And secondly, why should they shouldn't listen to everything I say because some of the things I may be saying are wrong. So it's very dangerous for society to listen to academics all the time. Uh, society has to decide what they like about us. And so I don't, be, I, I don't think any of us know all the truth. And there has to be a lot, much more debate than we have. And that's part of the problem. Uh, and secondly, there have to be many more government universities, government hospitals, government. They should be fancy, really good jobs, not higher salaries, but they should be really good permanent jobs in municipalities. The Delhi municipality should have 500 jobs for architects, for example, permanent jobs. Out of 500 permanent architects in the Delhi municipality, about 50 will be very good. Excellent. The best, one of you. Another. 100 will be good. So that's when things will get done properly. If good people are not in, in semi-government or public sector jobs, the correct things can't be done. Consultants cannot have good things done. Private architects cannot have good things done because they have, they have to listen to their, to their employer, to their sponsor. They can't use their own judgment. They'll get rejected. So unless so that's good, yeah. A, a I can't hear you. Girish, you've disappeared. No, that's because I just turned the camera off. Okay, okay. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay. So that the
does the planning of roads come under the purview of architects in India or is it a political activity? And here I would read architects as architects, urban designers. Yeah. So, or does the planning flow from political decisions? And if it is the latter, what can architects, urban designers do about that? No, they have to give, they have, for example, the, the UTPEC in Delhi has been saying somewhat correct things. But because senior people are not on the spot, how it gets implemented is very different. So, we, for example, in front of my house, a new metro station came up. So they redid the sidewalk. And the sidewalk is now uh, two meters wide, which was the, earlier it was not, or two and a half meters wide. But the way the tiles have been laid within a year that some of them are coming off. So if you're walking at night, older people like me can stumble. Uh, and the trees have been planted in the middle of the sidewalk. Okay. And with the fence around it. So you can't walk straight. And when you go past a tree, you have to step, at times you have to step off the sidewalk. Now, if, now the poor fellow who's laying the sidewalk, he doesn't know any of these things, or she doesn't know. She's also looking after children while laying the tiles. So there have to be senior people involved in the details. The, the trick lies in the details, not on the plan on the on paper. After the plan on the paper, there has to be details from neighborhood to neighborhood. If there's an old tree, what do you do? Do you go behind it? Do you, that some senior person has to decide. But if a, only a junior fellow is there, he'll narrow the sidewalk there, and so on. So what I understand is that, number one, theory in teaching is very important on why uh, something is correct. Secondly, when something is being implemented, then senior people have to examine every single meter of that space on how it's going to be implemented. And it's not easy because even in IIT, some of those things have been implemented badly. Because, and we are surrounded by engineers because senior people don't go and inspect meter to meter and change the design on paper. So uh, I, I think it can be done, it should happen. And uh, local communities should think it's their role I'll give you a very old example. When I was a student in IIT Bombay uh, 50 years ago, uh, a new auditor, it was very new IIT, uh, and our auditorium was being built. So Dunu Roy and I would go into the auditorium every day to see what they were doing. And now in two or three times we went, walked into the director's office, a student said, we don't think this is right in the auditorium. The design is wrong. The design of the desk is wrong. Now, the point is that students, faculty members, and others should feel they have a role in, 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 in contributing, inspecting, making their comments. But if you get beaten up for commenting, then your feedback disappears. So, so it's, a very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a feedback issue also. Couple more questions. One is that, since one of our audience members has written that I have always observed 
there are problems that we, which is state, politician, urban stakeholders of any kind, don't seem to have any sense of human dignity. That people cross roads in moving traffic, crisscrossing their way, at times even jumping across elevated medians, dividers, and it has become a usual practice on Delhi roads. So it becomes a sort of feedback loop where government's insensitivity augments this behavior and in turn desensitizes urban walkers further into accepting the situation, the status quo basically as something normal. So how do you look at this? Well, behavior is not, is not a given thing. All behavior is decided by the environment. So the same person, for example, if you look at our schools, most schools, except the very, very poor ones, most schools are much cleaner than most universities. Because for whatever reason, uh, the establishment there looks after their, their, their property. Uh, I think in many schools, the students also help with that. And so with much less budgets, uh, people uh, maintain reasonable school uh, compounds. Uh, the same person who will spit in IIT does not spit in India International Center. And the Indian International Center is not a very rich place. But because you do not see a previous red pan mark in IAC, uh, you, you feel you can't spit there. So it has a lot to do with how a place is organized. If there are no easy receptacles for garbage every 50 meters, which are clean, look nice, uh, where, should I, where should I throw my garbage? Uh, they should be, if you look at Manhattan or Tokyo, uh, you can cross this, the road, Park Avenue, you can cross every 300 meters at a red light. Now, if you design a road mm -hmm. where you can't cross the road for a kilometer, people should walk on the road everywhere. They are voting with their feet. They're telling you that your design is wrong. Now, it's up to us then to say, is but our response is, we will make an overhead bridge for pedestrians. Now, I can't use an overhead bridge. Uh, very, a lot of women will not use an overhead bridge or an underpass, even in Europe, because they don't know when they start climbing that they might be the only person with a bad man start standing there on top. So the issue is not how often it happens. For a woman, it should never happen once in her life. And so if you don't want it to happen once in your life, you're not going to take the risk of using uh, the, the put over bridge or the underpass. Therefore, over bridges, underpasses have been banned in, in, in all European and American cities, partly because of the law on this for the disabled, that you cannot have any public facility which the disabled can't use. So it has a lot to do with design. And the trick is that you first do the correct design. If after that people are doing it behaving badly, then you try and improve your design. And after your brain is finished redesigning, then you say, all right, now we have to do it by some, some, by some enforcement. But enforcement has to be the last thing. 
True. Good. So I think we've about come to the end of our time. We had another question with wanting to talk about world-class city issues, but I'm going to drop that because we will actually have a full but I podcast. But I must say, I must say that if we just do what exists just now in, mm -hmm. in our cities and just clean it up a little bit and make more people involved in feedback, we have world-class cities because there are very few cities in the world today, except Manhattan or Tokyo, where you can buy your daily needs everywhere except the richest gated communities within walking distance. Okay, you can walk out of most homes in our cities and find a cigarette or a panwala or a pal or a banana or mumpli, etc., etc. And in most of our cities, vegetables come home on tailors. And so we have world-class cities. We just yeah. don't see it. I mean I've lived in multiple cities in the U.S. and aspirationally, if you look at what the city designers are going towards 80s, 90s, 100s, to me, they look like they're going towards Indian cities just with more expensive material. Yeah. So I, let's be proud of what we are and improve it. That's all. Yeah, very much so. Good. So thanks, Dinesh. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for joining us. We extend our gratitude for Professor Mohan for sharing his valuable time with JSC. This has been a presentation of the Built Environment Studies program. We learned a lot from him today and we look forward to future opportunities to engage with him again. We also thank Professor Agarwal and Professor Ghosh. We will have another podcast next week at the same time. Professor Sarovar Zaidi will discuss architecture futures with Romy Kosa, Dr. Matthias Incho, and Mukta Nair. Sounds exciting. Okay. Yes. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank, uh, you. Thank, you, Thank you so much, Professor uh, Tavishi and Ravi. Uh, so, audience, this was JSA um, uh, podcast uh, session two. Uh, where we discussed about exclusively um, uh, urbanism today. So uh, next week on Wednesday, 11 a.m., uh, see you all again. Thank you so much and have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.